In this episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast, I'm joined by Dr. Jeff Buxton of Grove City College, and we're going to be discussing animal flow, or as we call it a few times, quadrupedal movement. What is it? What does it do? What what do we use it for from a training standpoint? What are the benefits to animal flow? It's a really cool, unique version of exercise that uh, there's really nothing like it as far as I can tell. So we're going to be discussing that in detail. And we're also going to be discussing some of Dr. Buxton's other work that he's done as it relates to low-carbohydrate diets in athletes. This episode and all of our episodes are brought to you by CTM Band. That's the Compression Tension Movement Band developed by Dr. Kyle Bowling. We had him as a guest on the podcast about a year ago. You can use the link below and use the coupon code BRAWN10 at checkout to get yourself 10% off. Before we get to the show, I got another sponsor that wants to have a quick word with you. Dr. Buxton, welcome to the show. Excited to have you on, man. Yeah, thanks. Thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it, Dan. So for those who aren't familiar with you, what you do, your research, can you share a little bit about yourself? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So uh, I'm an assistant professor at Grove City College. Uh, Grove City College is a small Christian liberal arts school in Western Pennsylvania. So, you know, we're about an hour north of Pittsburgh. Um, and I have been at Grove City College now as a full-time faculty member for four years uh, prior to that, I was sort of this part-time assistant faculty member, uh, but also head men's and women's tennis coach, which funny story, I, I never played a day of tennis in my life. Um, and it, it was awesome though. Uh, so <clears throat> I, I did that for the previous six years. And then prior to coming to Grove City, I was a basically a performance, a health and fitness performance coach and general manager at a I guess you can call, call it a boutique personal training studio in uh, State College, Pennsylvania. Uh, and I was there for 10 years. I did my undergraduate degree work at Penn State. So I bleed blue and white. Uh, I got some blue on today. So, <laughs> uh, not the best football season. It was looking promising. And then Iowa hit us. But um, I did uh, uh, my bachelor's there. Uh, and then I started working at this personal training facility right out of uh, school. Uh, I love that. Uh, you know, I've always been kind of a gym junkie. I never looked like a gym junkie, but I've always, you know, I've always been in the gym and I, I love training and uh, I love learning about training. And actually I'll say that um, my one big regret is I didn't, I didn't, <laughs> I didn't learn enough in undergrad, but I learned a ton when I came to this place and worked and um, uh, it was great. And I was surrounded by what I considered some of the best personal trainers. We had, um, Mentors like Juan Carlos Santana from Institute of Human Performance. Dr. Gary Gray was, was just doing his thing uh, at Gray Institute. Gray Cook was still with Reebok University. I don't know if you guys can remember way back to then, him and Annette Lang. Uh, and he was just branching out, getting ready to do his thing. Um, Mike Boyle, uh, who else? Later on, Nick Winkleman. So these were some of our influences. And what was great about that facility was they really it really pushed continuing education and going just above and beyond what was kind of standard personal training at the time. So, so that was, that was great. And during that time, I uh, did a master's degree online through California university of Pennsylvania. And it was really, really uh, during that time, after I got my master's degree, uh, part of my role at this facility was training new trainers. And, and I love that. I, I fell in love with the teaching aspect and I, 
starting to look for what, how can I do this more often? And that's what led me to Grove City College um, after there. Uh, I have a wife, she's amazing, Mandy, and I have three kids who are also amazing. Uh, Kaden, my oldest boy, and then Ellie and Amaya. Uh, so, so that's me. And um, I teach at Grove City um, in our exercise science program. Um, I teach a lot of courses. I do a full course load every semester, uh, 12 or more credits. Uh, I teach classes like exercise prescription, program design, functional kinesiology, uh, corrective exercise. We're going to be offering that in person for the first time next semester. I'm excited about that. Um, personal training, uh, I teach um, uh, research. And then we, I teach the research methods and research uh, practicum kind of sequence that we do here at Grove City College in which our undergraduate students, not only they, they design a research project and do a proposal, but then they actually carry it out and collect data and actually have reportable data that they can present at a, like an ACSM regional conference or national conference. But it can also, if it's a good enough project, we can also take it to get published, which we've done a couple of times as well. That's incredible. So, yeah, my research, um, I'm interested in all the novel stuff, the weird stuff. <laughs> so, uh, you know, the animal flow and and even some of maybe the stuff that we'll talk about later, some of this, uh, you know, ketone supplements and um, the low carb, high fat diets, et cetera. So, yeah, yeah, for sure. So I really like how you brought up your past experience. One of the things that we often think about when we think of professors is, oh, well, you know, they spent their whole life in the classroom, right? They went, they got their degree and now they're back and they're teaching it. And in reality, that's not always the case. In your specific example, you literally learned from some of the best of the best, Gary Gray, Greg Cook, Juan Carlos Santana. These are household names. I mean, I yeah. learned from um, individuals who learned from them. So indirectly yeah. learned from them <laughs> in school for my doctorate in physical therapy. And you were amongst the first of that cohort, which is really impressive. And now you're taking those lessons from years and years ago and building on them through your own experiences, through your own research. And now you're taking all of that unique experiences and uh, you're shuttling it into the classroom. So I really think that's an awesome little journey that you've had there. Uh, one of the things you mentioned was you really like the weird stuff and you <laughs> yeah. mentioned animal flow. Uh, yeah. I can't say I've ever seen someone in a gym completing animal flow type movements. Maybe I'll be the first one at the gym I go to down the road here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what, you, you probably have. You just haven't heard it called animal flow just yet. Right. So for those who haven't heard of animal flow, what exactly is it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Tough question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> so animal flow is a, a system we'll call it that. It's a system of training uh, that was developed by Mike Fitch and Karen Mahar, man, maybe 11 or more years ago. So it's been around. Uh, animal flow is what I consider a form of quadrupedal movement training. And, and you can even dive deeper down it. You can call it ground-based quadrupedal movement training, um, which simply means it's a type of training in which your hands and feet are interacting with the ground. In general, quadru quadrupedal movement training, uh, there's, there's, no real blanket definition for what is that. Hands and feet interacting with the ground, very dynamic movements, postures, transitions between these postures. Um, oftentimes the movements mimic those that you might see in the animal kingdom, 
but they can also mimic movements from the neurodevelopmental process, right? So, so it's a lot of, now animal flow <clears throat> is, like I said, it's this system of quadrupedal movement training that was developed by Mike and Karen years ago. And it's a unique system that is comprised of, or basically built around three base positions, uh, what they call the beast, the crab and the ape positions. Uh, the beast is kind of an all fours, your typical quadruped, hands and toes are on the ground. Crab is basically a supine version of a, of a quadruped, you know, hands and feet are on the ground, but you're in your classic crab, crab walk position. And then ape position is your classic deep squat in which um, it allows the hands to then come, come to the ground and interact. Um, and there are five key elements that make up animal flow. The first is your, what they call wrist mobilizations. And we can think of that as basically like a dynamic warm up for your wrists. Mm -hmm. Second is what they call activations. You wanna think about these as more like low level isometric or postural holds that are meant to kind of upregulate whole body systems, nervous systems. Um, and then we have form specific stretches. You can think of these as the uh, animal flows version of dynamic stretches and then uh, traveling forms. And these are all of what you probably see a little bit in, uh, you know, weight rooms is your, your crawlings, your bear crawls, your beast crawls, your crab walks, your, your ape walks and all that stuff. Um, and then there's switches and transitions. That's the fourth element. And the switches and transitions, these are, I guess, in my opinion, these are like the bread and butter of animal flow. These are the movements that are practiced to move you between different postures. They're the, the things that are used to maybe solve a movement puzzle. Mm -hmm. And they're usually what make up the bulk of a flow. The flow is the fifth element of, of animal flow. And the flow is, is that it's a choreographed or it's an unchoreographed sequence or linking of switches and transitions, form stretches, and maybe traveling forms. That's then repeated for either a certain number of reps or time. That's awesome. There's yeah. a lot that I really like about what you just described. So first, this is a entirely active movement-based approach. There's not really anything passive about it. We did, a, really. we did a podcast a little while ago with Dr. John Harned, who uh, specializes in functional range conditioning. And yeah. we talked about how passive range is kind of a big risk factor for injury. Because if you can put yourself in a position, but you have no muscular control over that, then as an athlete, that could lead to problems, to put it one way. I also really like how you said there's a lot of freedom within this. You said that things can be choreographed. So if you're not really sure what you're doing, you can just kind of follow along with a routine. Or if you're really into animal flow, you can just kind of go freestyle and have oh, fun and get creative with things. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, there, there is. <clears throat> and I think um, freedom is a nice word to use, especially in these days. Um, yeah, there, there is a lot of freedom with animal flow, um, as you said. And, and, you know, a little plug for animal flow. Animal flow does have its own on-demand channel. So for those who are looking for guidance, you know, you can check that out and you can, you can get that guidance um, where things are choreographed and, and things are spelled out. But yeah, it definitely can lend itself to almost 
this this flow state where you're just you're moving and you're unrestricted and you're just kind of going where your body feels like it can go and testing the limits. Oftentimes, um, especially what Animal Flow calls their master instructors, they'll talk about the practice of animal flow, especially when they're doing unchoreographed flow sessions, almost like movement meditation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it, you know, it's a place where you can kind of lose yourself and you know, uh, uh, find that freedom of, to move. Right. Perfect for like a pregame warmup for like an athlete or something like that. Um, There's was... so many places they can be embedded and, and, and used. I, I think um, that's one of the neat things about it is this, this sky's the limit to how you can do it. And I think we just need to know more about it. And, and that's what I'm interested in from a research standpoint is certain variables and, and um, you know, target specific outcome variables to see what what really are the the benefits and what's the ups and the downs right so from a research standpoint since you've researched uh what you call quadrupedal movement training or animal flow what have you found in your studies so far yeah and so there's number one there hasn't been much studies done um as i was prepping for my study there was only two studies that I came across that actually used quadrupedal movement training. They happen to use animal flow as their system. Um, so I'll just briefly talk about those. The one study basically compared animal flow to yoga and like a, a no activity control condition. And they were looking at acute impact on cognitive function. Um, so lots of, lots of stuff out there on exercise and cognitive function. And short and sweet, they found that the animal flow workout had a much greater acute impact on cognitive performance than yoga and the control condition. Um, so that was, that was study one that basically told us that, hey, there's, there's something going on here, uh, at least cognitively. And then um, the second study was basically a muscle activation study. And this looked at uh, EMG activity of select core muscles that uh, and compared the EMG activity of those muscles to three different versions of the beast pattern in animal flow. One was just your static, you know, all fours position. The other was where we do these uh, limb lifts and the other was your traveling beast where it's a limb lift, but you're now moving across a certain distance. And the, uh, but I think nothing mind blowing, but they found that obviously when you remove limbs, uh, or contact points, you're going to, you increase core demand specific or uh, significantly. Um, they actually found in the, uh, the condition where you're lifting your, your limbs off the ground, but just in a static position where you're now at two points of contact, uh, they found uh, 180% uh, maximal voluntary isometric contraction of the external oblique. So like just major firing of some of these core muscles. So those were the two that were done to that point that before I started my study. Um, I'll give you just a brief rundown of my study. So, so I was really interested in looking at some of the claims that were being made, not only by animal flow, animal flow but by other commercial companies out there that are quadrupedal movement training based. And so I really wanted to look at strength and flexibility and dynamic motor control, et cetera. So what we did was we recruited a bunch of physically active uh, individuals. Um, and these were kind of your plain Jane active subjects. They weren't 
anyone who had experience with um, advanced or alternative training techniques like CrossFit or powerlifting or Olympic lifting, you know, they were your, your typical plain Jane exercisers um, training at least three days a week. And they've been doing a, a, a mix of aerobic and resistance training. And, you know, they've been doing that for at least six months. So um, we recruited about 42 subjects and we split them randomly into two groups. Uh, one group just continued to do their normal training. The other group uh, continued to their normal training, but added two days a week, 60 minute sessions of animal flow. Uh, we got lucky when we looked at, we had each group track their physical activity the first week and the last week. Uh, we were just tracking the volume, the total duration of time. And um, statistically speaking, there was uh, no, no statistical difference between the total uh, duration of, of physical activity, structured physical activity that both groups were doing. Yes, the animal flow group had slightly higher uh, average weekly totals, but there was no, no statistically significant difference. Um, we did eight weeks of training. <clears throat> the animal flow group started real basic and uh, the, the group class was progressed very similar to those elements I just shared where they started with the wrist mobs. We did our activations, we did our form stretches, we did some traveling work. And then we started practicing various switches and transitions that we then used in a, a flow, a choreographed flow that, <clears throat> excuse me, we practiced at the end of each session. Uh, that progressed by the fifth week and until the end where we started um, supersetting activities and sequencing stuff. So instead of having it uh, be very categorized, we would do our wrist mobs. And then for a warm up, we did what we called an activate, mobilize, and move sequence, where we uh, coupled kind of like a tri set, an activation exercise for a certain number of seconds and immediately go into a form stretch and then immediately into a traveling form. This was all timed, rinse and repeat with a little bit of rest in between. And then for our switches and transitions, we started putting combinations like mini flows and we would do sets and reps of these mini flows that would then be used to create a, a, a bigger, more advanced flow at the end of the session. So that was kind of what the last four weeks looked like. Um, what we found was uh, that the animal flow condition significantly improved functional movement screen scores uh, that we use the FMS to basically assess movement quality. Mm -hmm. uh, so really neat finding there that the composite score increased by on average uh, 1.6, I think it was 1.65 points, which doesn't sound a ton, but on a scale of from zero to 21, what the literature shows is that increase of 1.65 is actually a meaningful clinically significant difference. So meaning it would change, has the potential to change someone's diagnosis. Uh, so that was neat. Animal flow had that potential to change a movement diagnosis. Um, and then we also found significant improvements in active joint range of motion. So not passive, this was active. What can the, the, the subject attain under their own volitional control for uh, shoulder extension? Um, I think, uh, internal and external rotation, um, hip flexion, hip extension, um, hip internal, external rotation, and even ankle joint range of motion. That's uh, incredible. Yeah. So really neat stuff there. We saw some other neat findings um, where both groups showed uh, significant improvements pre to post test. So both groups um, significantly improved uh, upper body muscle endurance measured by a push-up test, kind of classic, just go to failure yep. until your form gets really crappy. 
Um, and then we also did a Y balance test, which was looking at single limb, uh, you know, basically dynamic motor control, upper body and lower quarter. Um, so both groups uh, saw in significant improvements pre to post in those conditions, but there was no difference between the groups. Mm-hmm. The averages were trending towards better improvements for our animal flow group. Um, probably if we had more time uh, in our training program or maybe a bigger sample size, we would have seen significant differences between groups there. Right. That's awesome. And I wonder yeah. too, you kind of did the calisthenic based testing with the push up test and then standing balance. I wonder how those findings might carry over to what we consider like traditional weight room or even like CrossFit performance. Yeah. Yeah. You wonder, you know, we're seeing some movement quality improving. We're seeing some uh, active range of motion improving. We are seeing some postural control improving. Mm -hmm. Would that impact, you know, a a one RM attempt in some way? I don't, I don't know. You know um, uh, it's, you can speculate, um, based on what, you know, we kind of anecdotally know that sure there's, there's a potential to see some impact there. Right. Well, even just the increased core stability that you mentioned before increasing the oblique activation by 180% MBIC. I mean, that's huge. incredible. Not, yeah. not every exercise does that. So no, that's huge. huge. <laughs> and even from a physical therapy standpoint, that's kind of the lens that I've been have had right. to think through for the past few years there's a whole lot of application for this potentially for treatment of any condition you can think of really the sky's the limit. You said wrist mobility is huge. So how often do we see people with limitations in wrist motion, whether it's flexion, extension, deviation, whatever, um, looking up the chain up to the shoulder, you literally just found in your study, shoulder extension and rotation ranges have improved. How often do those motions get limited working down the chain? thoracic mobility is probably going to improve because of all the different positions yeah, lumbar you, or go ahead i was just gonna say that would have been great for us to measure that just didn't have the time to look into that but um that you know thoracic extension thoracic rotation would have been a great um, additional measure to look into right and then even working down the chain further you said hip range improved in yep. multiple planes yes and when we look at you know the classic low back pain I think it's 97% of people over the age of 60, over the age of 65, have abnormal findings on an MRI. So if you took 100 people, 97% of them are going to have, you know, disc problems or stenosis or whatever. Uh, So if you increase motion at the hip, that's going to reduce the motion requirements of the lumbar spine, because your body, um, just going back to that great cook line of thought, you're always going to sacrifice movement quality for quantity. So yeah. if we can't get it from the hip because we're You're a sedentary society, we sit down a lot, we have to get it from the spine and yeah. then people have lower back pain. So this has huge implications, I think, from a rehabilitation standpoint and a prehab standpoint. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's a unique look at this. Um, often when I talk about this in you know, presentations or I'm answering you know, questions to people who, who have you know, read the research or are interested like on social media, you know, a lot of the questions are, well, how do we, how do we imp- implement this into strength and conditioning or how do we use this for athletes? And it, there's lots of ways you can do that with athletes. And, and I think it's, you, you can embed it into a, a dynamic warm-up. You know, pick a couple of movements, pick your form specific stretches, do a little bit of these, just embed it simply in there. You can, you can take some of the movements and couple them 
with your primary lifts or even your accessory lifts within a, a training session. Um, you can do it on recovery days. This could, this is a great recovery workout. You can, you know, and in that case, maybe you do a whole kind of group class. Like I, I met, like I structured for the resistance or excuse me for my, uh, research and that's your, your recovery day. But what we don't, what I don't get a lot is, you know, the idea that, yeah, this can be used therapeutically. Um, and absolutely, I think, especially knowing that a lot of what we see in a lot of these movements, which Mike and Karen, they'll be the first to admit that nothing's really unique about animal flow. They're just repackaging stuff. You know, these movements have existed. A lot of the movements that's in animal flow specifically uh, come from calisthenics, come from breakdancing and parkour. They come from, you know, some of the martial arts, you know, the jujitsus and maybe some of the ground-based capoeira stuff, right? There's, there's so many influences on this. You know, they're just repackaging stuff that makes sense to them. Um, but a lot of these movements are also coming from, like I mentioned earlier, that neural developmental sequence, which I'm sure you're familiar with, at least uh, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization systems. That's mm -hmm. their whole approach, you know, that, that Czechoslovakian um, therapeutic uh, approach where they, they look to go back to the ground and go back to primal reflex repatterning. Um, and, you know, a lot of what you're seeing in animal floor are just scaled up versions of those maybe, uh, you know, primal reflex repatterning uh, drills that, you know, we were all doing as little, <laughs> uh, little bubbas. <clears throat> so huge therapeutic benefit. And I think one, one question I do get asked a lot, and I'm sure Mike and Karen get asked a lot this too, well, can it be used for someone who's injured? Can it be used for an older adult? You know, it looks like when I, when we go on social media, these really fit, slinky, slender people are doing it. And the, the answer is absolutely, it can be scaled to really fit almost everyone's need. Um, and, and I believe, and, and, and again, this is from my kind of upbringing and some of the gurus that I had mentoring me, you can scale everything. Mm -hmm. Everything can be scaled. Everything you see happening in that CrossFit games or the, the gym, that can be scaled down to some level where it works for you know whatever that person is, is doing there. Um, and, and again, plugging Animal Flow a little bit uh, just on their on-demand channel, they just came out with recently a few, what they call the Animal Flow regressions. And these are, are simplified versions of what actually are more advanced movements that make up the, the level one system. But now they have videos uh, demonstrating a lot of the regressions for these. How can we do these for someone who uh, maybe has knee issues or has a spinal issue or uh, is, has really trouble just getting integrating with their wrists and getting that wrist range of motion to do some of these. So, um, so right. much potential. Right. And you mentioned the uh, potential to scale. You can regress like you just mentioned, but it's easy to progress. And that doesn't just have to be from a load standpoint. Sure. You can, right. throw, a weight, you can throw a weighted vest on, but you could also change the tempo of movement. Yes. You could change what you pair these movements with, yeah. like you mentioned. Um, Additionally, when you're talking about um, kind of the neural side of things, um, what I what I'm taking from it is kind of one to Juan Carlos Santana Serape, so anterior and posterior, how we yes. have interconnected, Slings. yeah, sling systems, interconnected fascial systems of musculature, both anteriorly and posteriorly. So posteriorly, we see things like the calves connected with the hamstrings to the glutes and up the chain. And anteriorly, things like the adductors connected to your core. 
Um, there's also different subsystems and we'll see how good my memory is. Um, <laughs> intrinsically, we're looking at the transversus abdominis, so TA, internal oblique, pelvic floor, diaphragm, and then some models will throw multifidi, rotatores, different yep. interspinal muscles in there as well. Yeah. Posteriorly, we see in the posterior oblique subsystem, glute max and the lat on contralateral side. So they cross yeah. through the thoracolumbar fascia. And mm -hmm. then I recently saw some, one of the models uh, lump serratus posterior inferior in as part of the posterior oblique subsystem. Interesting. Uh, that that's a muscle that I haven't heard since anatomy. So um, it, it's on a comeback. Um, yeah. <laughs> anteriorly, we look at the rectus abdominis, external obliques and adductors, and then deep longitudinal would be your thoracolumbar fascia, uh, spinal erectors, rhomboids, mm -hmm. uh, biceps femoris, adductor magnus, yep. and yeah. piriformis. I, I might have missed a couple in there. No, yeah, that's but, pretty good. Yeah. So that, that's yeah. in general your subsystems. Um, yeah. And people look at the body and we often think that, oh, well, this moves. Oh, well, that moves. We don't often think that things move together. Uh, yeah. So from a function standpoint, you know, even just reaching your arm up overhead, a lot of people look right at the shoulder and say, well, the yeah. shoulder isn't moving enough. Maybe the shoulder's moving enough, but maybe the AC joint or the SC joint or the scapula or the thoracic spine isn't moving optimally. And that's yeah. limiting shoulder mobility. Yep. And this, again, addresses all of those things. It works everything together the way we were meant to move. What's, what's interesting too, you can use, and I know um, Chris Flores from uh, Flow Fitness, he's an athletic trainer at heart, um, but he also has a strength and conditioning side. He's an animal flow master instructor. Um, he uses a lot of the animal flow movements actually as kind of his sling system assessment. So mm -hmm. he, he can use this to, uh, to his knowledge and ability to assess any limitations in a dynamic linked movement pattern. So yeah, maybe we have a shoulder issue, but um, maybe it's not the shoulder. The shoulder is just a victim of something else in that any number of those slings that you mentioned or subsystems that is, is not freed up to move like it should. And the shoulder just happens to be the, the bearer of the bad news, basically, right? <laughs> right. Right. So we've talked quite a bit about the anatomical features of training. Now moving on to the physiological a little bit. Okay. You've researched physiology pretty in depth uh, with some of the world's leading researchers on ketones, yeah. uh, endurance athletes. It's pretty impressive. Uh, just in general, what have you looked at in the way of ketones, intermittent fasting, endurance athletes, that sort of thing? Yeah. So, um, yeah, some really cool stuff. And, uh, my, my disclaimer, which I already mentioned, <laughs> is, uh, I'm not the expert on these. Uh, actually my colleague who's probably listening in a little bit right next door to me, Dr. Philip Prinz. Um, he, he's really the expert and the, the driving force behind a lot of those projects that I was lucky enough to be invited to be on. Um, so, uh, yeah, we, we, we've done some neat work here at our lab. Um, and, so we've, we've had a couple of studies, I think two that I can think of that looked at intermittent fasting. Um, one I'll share really quickly some of the results of. We mm -hmm. looked at, um, we had a low carb, high fat study, which I will talk a little bit about because that was, that was in my opinion, fairly pivotal. 
um, what we found there in that world. And we know that's kind of a very polarized world, that low carb, high fat, high carb, low fat world. And in, especially with uh, endurance athletes. And then recently we've been doing some work with ketone supplementations with salts, as well as uh, monoesters, which if you're okay with it, I'll talk a little bit about yeah, the monoester study. Uh, Cause that was really cool. So I'll back up a little bit. Let me talk the fasting one first. So this was actually a student led project um, that I oversaw. Dr. Prinz had uh, a lot of insight into that just with his expertise in nutrition. Um, and so this one was neat. We looked at uh, a population of football players and we were interested in basically an overnight fast, uh, 16 hour, 12 hour versus a kind of a classic fed condition. I ate breakfast, typical standard American diet breakfast, mostly carbs, three hours prior to uh, doing various performance tests, which we looked at vertical jump, uh, a pro agility, and then 40 yard sprint. So, you know, your, your typical anaerobic performance stuff with these football players. And, um, you know, those were the three conditions, 16 hour overnight, 12 hour overnight, and then fed standard American three hours prior to testing. Um, we found no difference in performance, mm -hmm. um, which for those that have been through the, the classic nutrition classes, that's a mind blower, right? Because we've been fed this dogma that you need carbs, you need to, if you're going to perform, you're going to do this stuff. You got to have that, that, that food in you. Now, you know, um, there's, there's at, at least from a performance standpoint. Now, what would be interesting is to look at maybe a, a training session performance. Can we, can we look at, would, would you still be able to form, perform, you know, the, the same amount of load and volume and intensity, I don't know, uh, of a training session, but just from a performance standpoint, that anaerobic power, we saw no difference. So that, kind of breaks that dogma of saying you must eat before you come to the weight room or at least challenges that and gives us gives us um you know some credence to maybe challenge that that uh, that dogma that's been um, thrown at us for a really long time right why do you think that is what mechanism do you think is primarily causing the non-fed state to be um at, at least equivalent to what you would perform uh, if you were uh, to eat before training? Yeah. Um, again, I'm not the best to answer that question. Um, so, but I'll do my, my best there. Number one, I just think number one, the, the type of performances that we were doing, Yep. Um, they didn't require food. They didn't require that post-absorptive state to, to, uh, utilize. we have enough in our system already to fuel us for that. Um, it's hard to speculate, you know, I'm, I'm not an expert on fasting. Um, but you know, I know that fasting is a way to begin to induce nutritional ketosis, mm -hmm. um, and, you know, getting us into that state where, where, uh, fat is starting to turn over and become the primary fuel source, which we know is a very potent fuel source. So I think there, there could be a lot of mechanisms going on at play there, um, that, uh, you know, could be the rationale for why we didn't really see a difference, why performance remained the same there. Again, I wish I could speak more eloquently about that, but. Right. Uh, what, what came to mind for me was you're now in a state of autophagy for a prolonged period of time. Sure. Yeah. So the body potentially could recover better uh, after exercise. Um, there's a, 
study in, I want to say it was published in November 2018, and they actually looked at the effect of fasting on autophagy induction. So if you're looking for like a citation yeah. or a place to go, check that one out. Um, oh, and then additionally, there was some other research done that looked at growth hormone levels in response uh -huh. to intermittent fasting. And um, the first one that comes to mind was Journal of Clinical Nutrition 2015. And then the second one that comes to mind is, um, I'll have to pull it up here. There it is. Nutritional Metabolic Cardiovascular Disease 2013. Um, and both of these studies basically looked at the effect of intermittent fasting on growth hormone levels. And I'll even read the conclusion here for uh, the second one I mentioned there. Fasting induced acute changes in biomarkers of metabolic, cardiovascular, and general health. Uh, repeated episodes of periodic short-term fasting should be evaluated as a preventive, as a preventative treatment to the potential to reduce metabolic disease. So while you looked at this from a uh, performance standpoint, others are even looking at this as a, Hey, like we could use this to help treat heart disease. Uh, so yep. really powerful stuff here. And how much simpler can you get outside of just don't eat? I yeah. Mean, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think from a strategy standpoint, especially, you know, from my time as a coach, simple strategies win, yep. right? You know, something, you know, where it's as simple as, you know, just put the fork, which, and, and, and we have to admit that it's not always that simple too. you know, just put the fork down or just don't open the fridge. Um, there are other things at play <clears throat> with nutrition. And again, I'm not the expert here, but I think, you know, there's signaling that happens with um, this, uh, you know, as insulin is being bashed around, there's some signaling that happens uh, that we're unaware of that creates these um, desires and these habits. Uh, but yeah, simple, just, hey, don't, don't eat, don't wait until lunch to eat. <laughs> right. Well, even uh, those who have listened for a while know that I always work out right as soon as I wake up in the morning and I don't eat before and I don't eat anything for probably four or five hours afterwards. Uh, and I've kind of used myself as a personal case study on this. I kind of look at the physiology mechanisms and say, why would I put food in my body before I work out when that's going to increase blood flow to my gut at a time when I want blood flowing to my muscles? Yep. So I just kind of looked at that basic physiological principle and say, logically, I don't see it. And then yeah. we do the same thing for post-workout, right? A lot of people believe in this anabolic window and I just kind it's of more like a it. door. Yeah. yeah. We're finding it's like, if you get enough protein and after you work out, then you're fine. But the timing shouldn't matter because again, your blood is flowing to the muscles. After you work out, you damage them. So your body's in a state of inflammation. Your muscles kind of look like Swiss cheese. It needs it. Yeah. So instead of slamming it, uh, protein right then when you're already in an inflamed state and your body's now going to have to shift blood flow away from the muscles in yeah. order to digest that protein, why yeah. not just wait until things cool off? Yeah. You're potentially creating a conflict. Yeah. yeah. Correct. Yeah. Interesting yeah. stuff. But again, this is just basic physiological principles that we're now applying on the next level. Let me, um, let me, let me talk a little bit, if it's okay, about that low carb study, because yeah, yeah. you were, you were talking a little bit about like metabolic issues, right? Metabolic yep. disease. Yep. So, so 
really, really great study. Again, Dr. Prince led the way. He, he collaborated with Dr. Tim Noakes. I'm sure you and your listeners are familiar with Dr. Tim Noakes for sure. Uh, so that was great to have, you know, the world's leading exercise physiologist on this project. Um, and again, I got to help a little bit uh, on it with data collection and a little bit of the write-up, right? So what they did was they brought in some really high-level runners. Um, like I mentioned earlier, uh, just getting ready for this, you know, we had a runner on there who's going to the Olympic trials, you know, every time they come around. So some, some really high-level guys were met the inclusion, exclusion criteria. We put them on a six-week uh, either low-carb or high-fat diet. We gave them, I believe it was a two-week washout period, and then whatever, you know, put them on the other diet they didn't have. During those six weeks, um, we, we first did a VO2 max trial, and then we did, I believe it was four or five K or yeah, four or five K time trials throughout each six weeks. So right at the beginning and then every two weeks um, that we go there and they have their two week washout. And we did a whole bunch of other, um, you know, measurements, metabolic, uh, you know, blood gas measurements, uh, blood lipid profiles. We even looked at muscle glycogen utilization using ultrasound. Um, I, I, I can't speak to those findings, um, <laughs> but from a performance side, again, that's more of my interest. Um, was really, really neat. We found that there was no difference in um, uh, 5K uh, time trials between the, the low carb, high fat and the high fat, low carb diets. Um, and again, that was a kind of a, a, a mind blower, a dogmatic shift. Um, we had been seeing studies where we were seeing similar results um, to some degree with longer endurance stuff. And, you know, so Dr. Prinz and Tim, they wanted to you know, look at, okay, can we apply this to shorter duration, higher intensity endurance type work? And again, you know, kind of going against dogmatic practices, we showed that, yeah, there's, there was no difference uh, on either diet. So from a performance standpoint, either diet can work. But what we're finding now is that we're, we're in this world where insulin sensitivity is just really getting thrashed. We have a lot of sickness in this world, metabolic sickness. We have athletes who um, are metabolically sick. They just don't know it yet. Mm -hmm. um, they're insulin resistant, but they're healthy right now and they're they're doing their thing. But so, you know, if, if there's no difference in performance, why not use a nutritional strategy that actually might promote better long-term health? Yep, or at exactly. least maybe change or, or, or change acute health for the better and then you know maybe allow for greater metabolic flexibility um later on there right so great study um with dr noakes there and and it um you know just goes to show that it, it's from a performance standpoint it's not what it you know carbs is not the the answer in my opinion <laughs> i completely agree with you i'm in a very similar school of thought and uh <laughs> just a day ago from when we're recording this, um, someone I know who also has a podcast, they put out an episode on why sugar is essential for performance. And it just blew me away because I was like, you have this all wrong. <laughs> like, I don't know what research you've looked at, but clearly we're in, you know, completely different camps, but we don't, people don't seem to understand that the hidden things in food will eventually come back to bite them. Yeah. It's not necessarily that you're consuming, you know, organic oats. It's that, you know, if you're consuming, say, rolled oats, for example, they were sprayed, sprayed with uh, glyphosate before they were harvested. Or 
you know, so on and so on. Yeah. It's not that the energy bar is the problem. It's that it contains artificial sweeteners, which wreak yep. havoc on your gut microbiome. Yeah. So yep. it, it's a complex uh, picture and we're really only scratching the surface of it in this episode. Um, but there's a lot more than meets the eye to nutrition. Yeah, and I, I think like you're you're getting to it. almost seemed like you were angered by that article. And, and and it is angering and frustrating for people to still hold on to that notion that there's only one way. Mm-hmm. That's that's what's that's what's harmful, I think, to this this community, to not only the professionals, but those that are receiving the surfaces of us professionals, is, is this dogmatic idea that there's only one way. Um, when there's plenty of good quality research showing no. You know, if you want to maintain, if you want to perform, there's other ways, and some of these other ways might actually be healthier for you, at least in the short term, right? You know, they um, they can maybe you know uh, turn things for the better, right? So yeah, that it is frustrating. And even from a performance standpoint, you know, there might not be any short-term changes, but if you look long-term, if you're able to continue to participate in sport activity or training for yeah. a longer period of time then you will eventually either reach a higher level of performance or at least roughly maintain where you're at for a longer yeah. period of time. It goes into that. It, it, it actually can transition into the long-term athletic development model, which if you talk to Rick Howard and those guys, they, they talk about long-term athletic development, not just for athletes, but this idea that why should we, as we get older, stop playing sports recreationally? Sport is great physical activity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, like you, you just said there, it, it translates into the ability to do other things that are known for, uh, to, to promote health and wellness longer. Interesting. And um, from a performance standpoint, I, I do want to note that in that low carb, high fat study, yep. um, if we looked at the week to week trends and comparisons, um, yeah, the first week that all the subjects went on the low carb, high fat study, their 5k time was horrible <laughs> yeah. compared to, you know, week one on their low carb. But what we saw was that each week on that low carb, high fat, they got faster, faster, and faster. Their final time, uh, uh during the end of the, the low carb was faster than their final time on the high carb. So that's interesting. Mm-hmm. And then if you just think about the trend, the trend was they're getting faster and faster and faster. So that was only six weeks. What happens if they kept continuing? Right. How much faster could they have gotten? Yeah. Whereas on the low carb, they were actually getting, they were kind of more, you know, uh, some are getting, you know, a little bit faster, but then they go slower and then they go, fa- you know, it was more of this steady trend where there was a clear trend line on the high carb, sorry, excuse me, the low carb, but they were getting faster. Well, okay. Take that out another eight weeks, take that out of a year. How fast could they have gone? Right. Performance wise, we don't know. Right. And you're essentially making your body more efficient from a physiological standpoint. You are using almost exclusively stored fat for energy, as opposed to dipping into a carbohydrate source and then the fat source. It's just more streamlined, I guess I'll say. Yeah, And we did measure that too. We we measured um, uh, blood ketone levels just to try to confirm nutritional ketosis. Um, and, And, you know, throughout the six weeks that was confirmed. Uh, for our clients so yeah it demonstrates that yeah they were they were they were uh, in a state of nutritional ketosis and um, using they had made that shift and they were using uh, a, a different fuel source as their primary uh, engine and did you by chance look at like rpe during that at all uh, i'm sure we did um i think though because it was an all-out sprint yep. um we found that the RPE, there was really no difference from one condition to the other there. Right. Uh, there might've been some 
maybe there were some differences at the different time points that we measured RPE. We, I, I, we, we measured it maybe every 500 meters, mm -hmm. um, but I don't, I don't know the data on that. But it, when you look at the average, the overall session RPE, there was no differences because they were, they were busting it um, on each condition there. Right, right. Um, I've seen in the past where some uh, individuals, not really well backed by research from what I've seen yet, but just individual basis, some people feel like they are running uh, easier at a when they're on a high fat, low carb diet. Yeah. Um, and that's just kind of a personal thing. Yeah. Um, one thing I will throw out there, um, just for a, a little sense of devil's advocate, a lot of research that people look at or cite on ketogenic diets or low carb approaches, they often look at terrible sources of calories for fat. Uh, They'll look at, you know, corn oil or canola yeah. oil. And of course, they're going to have poor outcomes if that's your primary, you know, caloric intake. It's um, just crappy food. Yeah. So just always look at the methods of the study. I hope, yes. hopefully this episode highlighted the importance of that. Uh, and also when you're you know going out and trying playing with these things yourself maybe you end up trying a six or eight week low carb approach and see what happens just make sure you're using high quality fuel fuel sources yeah. things like you know cold pressed extra virgin olive oil macadamia yeah. nut oil coconut oil i mean the list goes on and on but yeah. stick with the high quality stuff because if you start dipping into you know highly oxidized inflammatory seed oils your outcomes are not going to be good. Yeah, garbage fat in is still garbage. Yep, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, so is there anything else you wanted to share with us about ketones there, Dr. Buxton? Yeah, I'll, I'll share with you just our last study that, because it was really cool. So we had some neat stuff that we did with ketone salts, mm -hmm. uh, but then we got into the world of ketone supplements. Um, and really quickly, this was great because that led to collaboration with Dr. Dominic Diagostino, yep. um, who probably you guys have, either ha uh, heard about and know well, as well as another guy who really took the lead on a lot this project. His name was Dr. Andrew Kutnick. So Diagostino, he's at UCFF, UF, USF. And then um, Andrew Kutnick is at the Institute of Human and Machine Cognition. Um, we jokingly call it the Institute of Smart People. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I mean, big, big thinkers there. What they did, they, they gave us this novel, well, it really was Dr. Kutnick, myself, and Dr. Prinz. We had this idea to look at the effects of a ketone monoester on the impact of, um, basically, can it mitigate um, the decline in cognitive function after exercising or doing physical activity in a hypoxic environment, right? So there's good evidence to show that hypoxia you know, decreases cognitive function. And, you know, we were thinking about some of these tactical populations that often have to experience acute bouts of hypoxia, and then they got to jump in to a high stress stimulation and be able to think critically, right? So, you know, what, what effect might this quick, can we shoot a ketone monoester? Does that impact it? And what we did was kind of novel because our lab does not have a, an environmental chamber. So anyone who's listening to this, if you feel sorry for us, want to donate money to getting an <laughs> environmental chamber, we'll take it. But we looking at some of the work that I'd come across, cause I'm, I'm interested in all the weird stuff, like I said. So breath work um, really intrigues me right now. And I came across the work of a guy named Professor Xavier Ruins. 
Professor X, awesome, right? Dr. Xavier Wounds. He's done a lot of work on this protocol called voluntary hypoventilation, which is a restricted breathing protocol during exercise that has been shown to simulate um, mild, hypo uh, mild altitude, um, uh, around 1,500 to 3,500 meters of altitude. So seeing SpO2 drops, you know, seeing your SpO2 drop around 80 to 88%, which is uh, similar to what you would experience at that type of altitude. So what we did was we uh, got a bunch of subjects who were willing to do this, <clears throat> where we took a whole bunch of blood chemistry measures again um, at baseline, um, you know, blood ketones, blood um, uh, uh, glucose, blood lactate, also blood gases. We uh, were measuring at rest um, uh, 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 gas uh, expiration measures using a portable metabolic cart. We did a, pre a baseline cognitive function test using the Stroop test and I think the switching uh, uh, mannequin switching test. Uh, so these are two standard uh, cognitive function tests. We then had them slam a placebo drink or a ketone monoester drink. Uh, and then we waited 30 minutes, then we repeated those baseline measures. Um, and then immediately after those baseline measures, we, we gave them this hypoxic uh, simulating exercise protocol. And basically what subjects did was they ran at a moderate intensity uh, and they intermittently held their breath for at a, at a low lung volume. That was the key is that there was an inhale, then an exhale, and they held for four seconds. Another inhale, exhale, they repeated that for 45 seconds. And then 15 seconds, they breathe normally. That's one minute. We did five minutes of that, a one minute rest. And then we repeated, we did uh, essentially four rounds of that. So 20 minutes of running with this, holding your breath while you're running really hard. Uh, and then the whole time they got the metabolic mask on and we're taking these blood gas measurements during their rest period and all this cool stuff. Um, we saw, ultimately we saw uh, the ketone monoesters we saw a uh, reduction in blood glucose, right? So uh, 30 minutes post, blood glucose was buffered. Uh, it was lowered and we saw a, a slight trend towards the lowering of blood glucose throughout the exercise protocol. Um, we didn't see any differences in cognitive function. Uh, we speculated that this was due to the, there was actually an exercise component. So there's lots of strong evidence showing that exercise uh, enhances cognitive function. So we're, we're sure that's the reason we didn't see any differences um, in this group because even though they were exercising in hypoxia, they were still exercising and um, no differences there. Really, really cool finding was that during the exercise protocol, the ketone monoester mitigated the rise in uh, partial pressure of carbon dioxide. So mm -hmm. from a tactical perspective, um, this is sends a lot of credence to exploring this more, especially for populations that operate in extreme environments, either at altitude or some of our guys uh, that are operating in submersible vessels, um, where we're mitigating this increase in uh, partial pressure of CO2, which we know partial pressure of CO2 is that increases, that's linked to a whole bunch of stuff, you know, stress panic disorder, um, metabolic acidosis, et cetera, et cetera. So um, the ketone monoester helped to mitigate that. So we're doing some follow-up studies uh, on that. And hopefully we got a study planned for next year, um, Institute of Machine and Human uh, Cognition. They're going to be following up on some of this to try to dive deeper into it.
That's very interesting. <laughs> and it's amazing how the ketone essentially is just acting as a buffer system uh, to, yeah. help, uh, to help kind of mitigate, like you said, the body's need to do it on its own. Uh, and I'm thinking of even other applications right now. Um, there's, it, it's still kind of early in uh, the research process, but there's some findings now that might suggest that wearing a mask for a prolonged periods of time uh, will increase your body's level of carbon dioxide. Yep. And you know, one of the things that I've really been a huge <laughs> proponent of since we started the podcast uh, in March of 2020 is we cannot have the outcome of pandemic become worse than the pandemic itself. Uh, so we need to make sure that we are paying attention oh, to sad. all these personal individual health factors, even when we are doing things that will hopefully, you know, reduce things like mortality rate right now, yeah. we, we need to keep the long-term game in mind. Yep. So um, yeah. that could be something that I could see applied there, yeah. especially think about those who are affected with the disease too and yeah. we end up with these respiratory conditions and co2 levels are rising because of poor perfusion and poor ventilation i, I don't know mechanistically we're still not sure what really happened there but um and we hope to dive into that but i don't know i mean on, going out on a bold limb could a monoester be a therapeutic supplement to help individuals that are experiencing some of these more drastic respiratory effects from COVID, right? Right. Or from a similar disease, you know, where we have issues with perfusion and CO2 rising and, and all of the things that, that um, happen adversely with that. Right. If anyone wants to look into those things from a research standpoint, um, you can email either Jeff or myself and uh, yeah. we're, we're happy to help out with that. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Love it. Oh. Love, love talking this stuff. <laughs> awesome. Jeff, is there anything else you want to share with our listeners before we wrap up here? No, I'm good. I just really thanks for your, uh, your time, Dan, and inviting me on the, the podcast here. And uh, hopefully your listeners enjoy, uh, enjoy what we talked about. Yeah, really appreciate your time. And uh, for those who want to check out Dr. Buxton more, I'm going to link to his research gate and any other links he sends me uh, in the description below so you can check out all of his works and uh, all his different publications uh, from the past. Dr. Buxton, thanks again. Thanks so much. That's going to do it for this episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast with Dr. Jeff Buxton. If you like this episode, please make sure to subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already and share this episode with a friend who you think might benefit from some of the information that we shared. And don't forget to check us out on social media. You can find us at Brawn Body on all platforms. Thanks again for listening. We'll see you next week.